And we're picking up the story of Jesus with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. This is on the night before his death. Let me read for us. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The next reading comes from Matthew chapter 27, verse 11 to 46. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. 
When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Good morning, my name's Stephen, I'm um, the minister here, it's great that you could join us. And I've got a question for you, do you know who this guy is? I'm sure you do, everyone's got to know who this is. Kareem Saragildan? No? No one? Okay, well this guy used to earn seven million dollars a year as a top executive for Credit Suisse. But his claim to fame is that he played a part in the recent financial crisis. The thing that got him in trouble was that he approved the concealment of hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. Now, I don't know how you conceal that kind of money, and I guess it must be pretty hard because he got caught. And as the judge sentenced him to 30 months in jail, this is what he said... The judge said that what he did was a small piece of an overall evil climate within the bank and with many other banks. Most of us here in Australia have been pretty shielded from the financial crisis of 2008, but people lost homes, people lost investments, some people lost everything. People like Kareem, out of greed, put themselves and their companies above the interests of everyone else in the world. And so seeing people like him face justice for what they did is a good thing. 
Apparently in the 1980s, there was a, um, a savings and loan scandal where over a thousand people were prosecuted. I don't remember it. I only remember things like Astro Boy from the 80s. But that financial crisis apparently dwarfed the most recent one. And do you know how many people went to jail for their greed and their selfishness and the crimes that contributed to the most recent financial crisis? One, Kareem, just Kareem. Now, it's absolutely not the case that he somehow single-handedly brought about the crisis. Instead, what this means is that there are a whole heap of people who haven't faced justice. It's not really fair, is it? People are evicted from their homes while those responsible carry on earning millions of dollars a year as top executives. And to make matters worse, they will never face justice because apparently in America there's something called the statute of limitations, which means after 10 years, that's it. And most of the crimes were committed in 2006. Now I just told you a story of justice done, Kareem, and a bigger story of injustice, all the other thousands of top executives who are off the hook. And I could have told you a million stories that are exactly the same, a story of justice followed by more stories of injustice. Today, as Brian said, we're imagining a world without justice. And unfortunately, it isn't all that hard to imagine. There are billions of examples of failures of justice, war crimes, corrupt politicians, companies destroying the environment, drug companies fudging results. In many ways, as we look around the world, justice is the exception rather than the rule. Now, I'm not trying to depress us, but I do think it's fair to say that justice has a problem. It doesn't always happen. And if you take God out of the picture, it will never happen. Without God, the idea of justice has a serious problem. Because what reason do we have to expect that justice will be done? Now, we live in a great country with fantastic courts. But even still, our courts can't guarantee justice. People get off rape because there's enough evidence while other people get penalised for things they haven't done because they can't afford the lawyer that they need. We love stories like Aaron Brockovich, but they're rare. And then, of course, there, there are huge areas of life that aren't even relevant to the courts, but are still relevant to justice. Like a relationship where a spouse mistreats you terribly, is unfaithful to you over many years and demeans you, but then walks away with everything seeming to be in their favour, with a good job, with a new relationship, leaving the kids behind. What justice can a court give you in that situation? None, because these things are outside the scope of the courts. All it can do is divide up your assets on a no-fault basis. And then, even when a court can find someone guilty, how do you hand out justice for someone who kills 34 people with a bomb? A life sentence? Is that really justice? Even the death penalty, someone dying calmly, pain-free, how does that equal the terror and the pain they inflicted? Without God, justice has a problem. 
because our ability to bring about justice in this world, it's so limited. But actually, I haven't even talked about half of the problem because if you take God out of the picture, justice has an even bigger problem. Without God, what reason do we have to expect that justice even exists at all? What I mean is, what reason is there to believe that something is right and something else is wrong? What foundation does justice rest on if it's not resting on the foundation of God? Almost all of us operate with the belief that there is right and wrong, but why? Why are these things not just made up by humans? Why is this feeling that there's right and wrong not just an evolutionary hang-up? just an imprint on us from evolution that makes us a more successful group that survives. You know, our group is more likely to survive if each person feels that some things are right and some things are wrong. That's actually what a lot of people believe. But think about what this means. Once you realise that right and wrong is just a feeling from your evolutionary past, what happens next? You can just outgrow these feelings of right and wrong. You've evolved beyond them. Or you can shape them as seems best to you or best to your culture. The idea of right and wrong is just a useful evolutionary survival coding in our brain. What that means for justice is that it is fluid. It can change as a culture changes, as cultural feelings change. Think about what that would mean. It mean 30 years ago, homosexuality was wrong. It would mean now, homosexuality is right. And it could mean in 30 years that it could be wrong again. Or think about murder. Murder is wrong now. But perhaps as a culture, we might evolve a different idea of justice. And murder might become right. And it might even make evolutionary sense if the world is overcrowded. Now, I don't think many of us are comfortable with this idea of fluid justice. We intuitively know that I'm speaking dangerous rubbish up here. We know that justice doesn't work that way. It's not fluid. It's anchored in some greater reality, bigger than us. Bigger than us as individuals, bigger than us as a culture, greater than popular opinion. It was wrong for the Romans to put out their unwanted babies to die slowly even though popular opinion was okay with that. Pedophilia was, is wrong, always has been wrong, always will be wrong. Rape is wrong. There's an evil that stands behind these things that we can't see or touch, but most sensible people do not doubt that it's as real as the chair that you're sitting on. And most of us don't doubt that evil like this demands justice. But without God... How do we even explain the existence of right and wrong? We can't. We can try, but in the end, the best we can do is pretend that there's right and wrong. Now, I'm not saying that people who don't believe in God don't believe in right and wrong. I'm not even saying that people who don't believe in God are less just than people that do. Some atheists are amazing people committed to justice and what's right in a way that Christians should actually aspire to. What I am saying is just stating the obvious. Without God, there is no 
solid, logical basis for right and wrong. Without God, justice has a serious problem. No action is truly right, no action is truly wrong, they're just all neutral. But I don't believe that, and neither does anyone actually, because the way that we all live shows that we can't help but believe, as live as if right and wrong are real things. And of course, that's because right and wrong are real things. God exists, and so justice exists. But because God and justice exist, it leaves us with a problem. We have a problem. See, we like the idea that God will bring justice, but we don't like the idea that God judges, which is strange, really. God's justice is to answer our wrong, and God's answer is what the Bible calls hell, not the kind of comical picture that jumps to our mind. Hell is a tragic picture of of people facing justice for mistreating an infinitely good God and mistreating each other. A lot of us want to say, don't have a hell, God. Don't do that. Just get rid of the idea. It's bad for your reputation. But what we're actually saying to God is, don't worry about justice. But God's not like us. He will always be worried about justice. See, like us, God's not happy to leave Hitler's murder of 5.5 million Jews and 20 million civilians unanswered. But unlike us, God's not happy to leave any evil unanswered. Okay, so if we accept hell as a place of justice, who are we going to say is in and who's out? Is Hitler in? Yes. Pol Pot? Yes. Saddam? Yes. Putin? See, everyone does wrong. So where do we draw the line? How do we decide what demands justice and what doesn't? Maybe we should use a different criteria. Maybe we should let people off who try their hardest. But I don't think Hitler wasn't trying. Pol Pot was working for a communist utopia. So maybe instead we should let people off who are genuine, sincere. But again, you can be sincerely wrong. Suicide bombers are some of the most sincere people in the world. And they do some of the most terrible things. Should we just say then, people who murder and people who do really bad things should have to face justice? That's a bit vague, isn't it? Let's flip it around. Who shouldn't have to face God's justice? Well, people like me. That's what we all think, though, isn't it? People who are pretty good people, like me, or at least who are a lot better than other people. I hope you're disgusted by my sense of justice, thinking that what I've done wrong is not as bad as what others have done wrong and therefore they should face justice, but I shouldn't have to. That's not how God judges. That's a flawed human way. God's justice is complete. He won't bend it or fudge it. God will not overlook any wrong. God judges us for the big stuff, but also on the little stuff, the stuff that we consider little. God judges us even for considering some things to be little. It's the school bell. Like, did you know, have you, I don't know if you've seen this on Facebook, but 
if the world was just 100 people, you know, you reduce the entire population down just to 100 people, you know, roughly what's here, a little bit less. One person here would hold 50% of the world's money. And you and I actually are that one person. Now, what do you think God's justice would say to the one person who holds 50% of the world's money? Oh, that's okay, you were born in Australia. How are you supposed to know better? It's not like you could know that people in Africa couldn't feed their kids. His justice is so much stronger than ours, more pure. God will judge us for how we treat each other. But God will also treat us for how we treat Him, judge us for how we treat Him. I mean, just think about that. Every good gift comes from His hand, and yet how often have we expressed thanks? You can't turn anywhere in this world without seeing His kindness and His love, and yet how often do we acknowledge it? God wants to know each one of us deeply. He wants to be our greatest treasure in this life, and yet how often do we treasure the gifts over the giver? Gifts like alcohol, sex, food, family... And God is the one who rules the universe. He wants us to acknowledge His his rule over our own lives. But how often have we ignored it or questioned it or laughed at it or even just outright rebelled against it? Rejecting an infinitely good God who has the right to rule us is infinitely wrong. We have a problem with justice. Because we all face God's justice for the part we've played in the mess of this world. Whenever I think of um, the part I've played in the mess of this world, one example particularly always jumps to my mind. I remember back to when I was at school and, and this one kid who I treated terribly over many years, you know, picking on him in a way that just can't be undone. I've apologised. But that doesn't fix the real damage that was done to him. I wasn't the only one who did it. I wasn't even the worst behaved. But does that excuse me? No. And it certainly doesn't justify me. His life is still touched by what he went through at school. And that's just one way that I've contributed to the mess in this world. God will bring justice. It's who He is. He will not leave evil without an answer. And that's a problem for me. And it's a problem for all of us because we have no answer to give. There are views of God out there that if you try hard or follow a certain religion or a way of life, God will show you mercy and forgive your wrong. But these views of God are flawed because the true God is on about justice And he will never leave wrong unanswered. There's only one possible way that God can show mercy and yet answer wrong at the same time. And that's Jesus dying on the cross. See, with God, with Jesus, God actually creates a way for justice and mercy to come together perfectly. Look at what's happening at the cross. Verse 37, above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 40, those who pass by him mock him. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. 
even the criminals being crucified mock him and all the leaders mock him verse 42 he saved others they said but he can't save himself and the irony is they say this laughing meaning jesus is a fool to be disregarded and mocked but what they don't realize is that without meaning to they're speaking the truth if jesus is to save others it's true he cannot save himself They make the mistake of thinking the cross proves he is not who he has claimed to be and so he's a joke. When in actual fact the cross is the ultimate demonstration of the character of God. The cross proves who God is. He really is. Jesus, he really is the King of the Jews. This really is the Son of God, loved by his Father, And yet here he is dying. But instead of being something to stand in front of and mock, it's something to stand in front of and wonder. Because here at the cross, we see God's answer to our wrong. Look at verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? God's answer to our wrong. Is Jesus forsaken by God on the cross? It's Jesus bearing our punishment, taking our place, facing justice for us. But it's worth just stopping and going, but how is this justice? Isn't this just God punishing someone else, an innocent third party? Isn't this like if I smashed Brian's car, who was up here leading before, but made you pay for it? Isn't it like that? I smash his car, but you have to pay for it. It's not like that. It's like as if I smash Brian's car and he decides to absorb the cost himself. God's answer to our wrong is to take the punishment for all the evil of his world into himself. The son suffers being forsaken by the father and the father suffers the death of his loved son. We can't know exactly what's going on in that moment. We're not God. But God there is bringing together perfectly his justice and his mercy as Jesus dies in our place, takes our punishment in our place, as God absorbs into himself the consequence of our wrong so that he can offer mercy and still be just. Now this is exactly what Jesus' death achieves. Have a look there at verse 50, which is at the end. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the temple had a small section in it that was completely out of bounds to everyone. It was the most important part of the temple and it symbolized the place where God's presence was. No one could go into that part of the temple except the high priest once a year after offering special sacrifices. That's how pure God was, too pure, 
too just. He cannot stand any form of wrong to be in his presence. But what Jesus achieved on the cross was the answer to all wrong. Because in an instant, the way into God's presence was now freely open to anyone. With his death, the thick curtain that separated everyone from his presence was torn from heaven down. Mercy is available to anyone. Anyone can walk straight in, as they are. Nothing more needs to be done. Jesus has done it. Now, at the beginning, I asked us to imagine a world without justice. But that world doesn't exist. Instead, let me, to, let me ask you to imagine a world without Easter. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, we stand facing God without Jesus. And so, without mercy. God's love drove him to enter this world to create the one possible way for his justice and mercy to perfectly meet. As in Jesus on the cross, God himself faces his own justice for us. But maybe you haven't accepted God's way of mercy. The way is open, but have you walked through the torn curtain? Until we place ourselves in the care of Jesus, we are still facing God's justice without his mercy. It's kind of like in a bushfire. When there's a bushfire, the safe place to stand is on the ground that's already been burned. The fire's not going to burn there again. Jesus is our safe ground, our burnt ground, where we will never face God's judgment again. Without God, we've seen justice as a problem. With God, we have a problem. But with Jesus, God can take that problem from you. Are you standing in God's mercy? You can. I'd love to chat to you more about it if you want to. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at the cross. Lord, once we mocked and, and thought how ridiculous it, would, it was, either that you existed or that you would enter this world or that Jesus could make us right with you. But Lord, we stand in wonder that here in Jesus you entered the creation in order to deal with our greatest problem. Lord, we are amazed at the way you perfectly bring together justice and your mercy. Lord, your love for us is astounding. We thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. Help us to stand in that place, to enter through the curtain that the way you've opened up for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.